You know, living is not the same as being alive. Living as in an existence kind of living is not the same as truly, fully being alive. And you've experienced this in your life. Moments, or maybe your entire life has been this way, but there's been seasons of your life where you feel like you're kind of in this existence, but you're not really alive. And often we experience this kind of existence living when we feel the weight of the pain of this world, the weight of loss, the weight of past regret, mistakes, failures. Maybe as you feel the weight of your shame and your sin, you're existing, but you're not really alive. In fact, in those moments, you're probably wondering, I need to find life, like real life. Jesus said this. He said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Not in existence, but real, full life. Physical, emotional, mental, but especially spiritual life. When Jesus said, I've come to give them life, full, abundant, whatever word, you know, translation you want to use, when he says, I've come to give you life, this was a, a, a life that was unmatched in quality. It was a life that was unending in quantity. Imagine life like that, unmatched in quality and unending in quantity. Wouldn't you want that kind of life? I mean, who wouldn't want that kind of life? Well, Jesus says, I've come to bring just that. And Jesus came to bring life. But here's the thing. You can't bring it if you don't already have it. And the question is this, did Jesus even have this kind of life that he could even give it to us? Well, scripture tells us that Jesus, who was fully man, came as a full human physical being, was also fully God, 100% of both. And that doesn't make a lot of sense. It's hard to wrap our head around, but he's fully man and fully God. And Jesus took the wrath of sin, God's anger and wrath towards sin because sin is always death and God hates death. He's against death. Death is the arch enemy of God. And Jesus took on death. He took the wrath of God that was against sin, your sin and my sin. And Jesus paid our debt of sin by going to the cross and experiencing the ultimate death for us doesn't sound like a guy who has life, full life. But that was Friday. And Sunday was coming. And the grave could not hold Jesus. And death could not keep him down. And God raised Jesus to life so that he could indeed say, I've come that you may have life. And have life to the full. Like not existence, but really be alive. But this brings up a lot of questions, doesn't it? And maybe one of your questions is, yeah, but isn't that whole like resurrection thing about Jesus like a big fairy tale? Isn't it a myth? I mean, some guy in a corner writing something and some people believed it and eventually it took off and now we have the Christian faith, but is it actually true? We're going to talk about that today. 
Maybe your question is, well, no, I believe Jesus rose from the dead back then, but man, I, I live in my life and, and I feel the weight of my sin and the weight of circumstance and the weight of brokenness and the weight of loss. I'm not living like full life. I feel like I'm in existence. What does the resurrection have to do with me? We're going to talk about that. And maybe you're like, well, I believe the resurrection happened. I'm, I'm all in on that. And yeah, you know, we've got some like, some you know, life now that we can have because of the resurrection, but don't we all just kind of have the same end fate anyways? I mean, we live our 70, 80 years at best, 90 if we have to, right? But like, isn't the end the same for all of us? I mean, eventually we all die. We're going to talk about that today. In fact, we're going to talk about resurrection in kind of three lanes or three lenses. And we're going to talk about resurrection as then, something that happened. We're going to talk about resurrection that's actually happening right now. And we're going to talk about a resurrection that's yet coming. All of it has to do with the resurrection. In fact, Scripture talks about this idea of resurrection. as something that happened and happening and is about to happen all throughout the New Testament especially, but the Apostle Paul says it all in one verse, and I color-coded it, then is, you know, back then, now, red, and then yellow is, is the resurrection yet to come, because he, he, he says this all in one verse, and it's found in Romans chapter 8, verse 11, and I color-coded the verse as well. It says this, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, something that happened, if it truly happened, and that same spirit's living in you, that means there's this resurrection that happened, but that same resurrection power is now in you. There's a resurrection happening. Then he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit, meaning there's some kind of resurrection that's yet to come. See, resurrection happened. Resurrection is happening, and resurrection will yet take place. So how does this all work? Well, let's dive into the passage a little bit more in depth and see where Paul starts. And that's with the resurrection that happened. Here's what Paul says. He says, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead. Now you notice the word spirit is a capital S spirit. This isn't some like mystical thing that happened. It's like, whoa, there's like a spirit in here somewhere. No, this is, this is like capital S spirit. This is the very spirit of God. What Paul is saying is if God actually raised Jesus from the dead. But you notice there's an if, right? If this really happened. And maybe that's your question. Did it really happen? And you have all kinds of doubts. I've had all kinds of doubts. But I want to uh, bring up three problems to all of our doubts. We all have doubts, and I think it's good to wrestle out our doubts because if you don't doubt well, you're probably not going to think about the truth very well, and so it's okay to wrestle with our doubts. But I think there's three problems I want to bring up. They're problems to our doubts when we doubt the resurrection. Did this actually happen? And here's three problems to our doubts. The first problem is this. It's the problem of early reports. And maybe you've had doubts and you're like, well, you know, wasn't it some guy just writing in his room and then just kind of took off? But there's a problem to that doubt and it's the problem of the early, early reports. See, uh, scholars all agree, uh, by and large, that the New Testament writings, some of them were written as early as 15 to 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Which means this, 
It wasn't like the writers were writing like 100, 200, 300 years later. And it's like, well, I didn't even actually see it or I don't know anyone who saw it. But I'm going to write this thing and no one could say it actually happened or it didn't happen because nobody was there. No, it happened 15 to 20 years after the event actually happened. Which means all of those people who saw it, who were witnesses, could say, no, that didn't happen. Yeah, actually that did happen. This was very, very, uh, and this brings uh, uh, as a problem to our doubts because, well, if we doubt it was actually true, this was written while people who actually experienced it were there to say whether it was true or wasn't true. In fact, the Apostle Paul, who uh, writes about the resurrection, uh, writes to us maybe the earliest uh, 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 story of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. He says this. He says, for what what I received, I passed on to you as first importance, which means this. If you take this out of your faith, your faith crumbles. Your entire faith is the most important. The foundation of everything sits on this event. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And he's going to talk about that according to the scriptures thing again. And in essence, the reason he does that is because this is a really unbelievable story. And everyone's like, wow, that's really unbelievable. He's like, we should have saw it coming because actually it was already written about before it ever happened. It's just happened according to the scriptures. We shouldn't be so surprised. But everyone's surprised because, well, Christ died for our sins that he was buried, because that's what you do with dead people, right? That he was raised on the third day according to the scripture. Again, don't be surprised, right? This was already told and talked about. And then the interesting part, uh, or uh, it's all interesting, this is just continues, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. Cephas is Peter. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep, which is his way of saying some have died. But most of them, remember he's writing this 15, 20 years after it happened, most of them are still alive. Which in essence, Paul is writing this because he's saying all of you doubters, you shouldn't be surprised, first of all, because it happened according to the scriptures. But here's the other thing. The problem to your doubt is this is really early on. And in essence, what Paul is saying is this, fact check me. That's what he's telling people to do. He's saying, you don't believe it? There's still like 500 people alive who saw it happen. Fact check me. And here's what Paul does not say. He does not say, Google it. Doesn't say that. You know why he doesn't say that? Because not everything on Google is true. And I know for some of you, you're like, this has rocked your world, right? It's like, what? I've been living my whole life on Google. I thought everything was true. It was Google. This is like grade four religious ed I teach. And uh, un- inevitably, every year this happens, I forget, and it gets close to Christmas. And I'll just kind of randomly say this comment like, you know, you guys all know Santa's not real and I keep going. And then afterwards, I'm like, oh, shoot, I wrecked it for them. Uh, you know, because it's like their whole life, it's like Santa's real. And all of a sudden, it's like, Santa's not real. I'm sorry if I did that with you. Google is not all true, okay? So Paul did not say, go Google it. He actually did better than that. He said, fact check me. Go talk to the people who are still alive, who saw because Jesus' death was a very public event. And everyone saw he died. And more than 500 people saw him raised back to life. This is a problem for our doubts today. It's the problem of the early reports. 
It's the problem of the early reports. But not only do we have the problem of the early reports, we have the problem of women. Oh, shoot. Oh, no. I realized this this morning, and it's too late to change it, but I like, you know, I have the life rule. We all have life rules. Never use the word problem and women in the same sentence. That's a life rule, okay? For, so anyway, so we got to get past this. Sorry, women. Um, what is the problem of women? It should actually say the problem of the women, because not all women, okay? So what's the problem of women? Well, interestingly enough, all the writers, the gospel writers, write the same thing in their gospel. They take an ex- exceptionally unbelievable story, which is this guy died by crucifixion, and then he rose to life three days later, and all the gospel writers do this. They make women the first eyewitnesses, which in essence takes a very unbelievable story and makes it even less believable. And I'm sorry to offend, but this was for their culture, not ours. We've changed, thank goodness. But in that culture, women were not even able to testify in a court of law. Their testimony was not valid. So why? Why in the world, if you were making up a story and you got to make up a story, would you take an unbelievable story and then make it even less believable by saying, oh, the first people who saw him alive were actually people who they actually aren't incredible witnesses. It'd be like in our culture equivalent of saying, hey, this unbelievable thing that uh, happened and the only person who saw is like the five-year-old kid. Like, he can't even testify in court. Like, is it true? I don't know if I believe him. Like, that, that was the equivalent. Now, I know women, we don't tr- treat you this way anymore, and, and it's good that it's changed, but this was the culture of the day. So why would the gospel writers all write the same thing, making an unbelievable even, a story even less believable? Here's why. They couldn't change it because it was True. It was true. And remember, it was the early reports. This wasn't like hundreds of years later where it's like, "Ah, I could just change this fact or this fact. All the people, Mary, right? We read this earlier. Mary would have stood up and said, Peter didn't see him first. I saw him first, right? I mean, everyone would have been in uproar. They all knew the story. So they had to write it because it was true. This is a problem for our doubts. This is a problem for our doubts. The third problem, and there's many problems for adults, but this is the third one I want to bring up, is the problem of James. Maybe you're like, why is James a problem? Uh, James is a problem because he was the brother of Jesus. And that's a problem for our doubts. And here's why. What would it take for you to believe that your brother is the son of God? Exactly. Exactly. It would take a lot. And James who was the brother of Jesus, did not believe his brother was the son of God. In fact, in Mark chapter 3, we're told that James, probably along with his brothers, the brothers of Jesus, came to Jesus while he was making all these claims and doing all this stuff and teaching the people, and they came to take charge of him, and here's why. You only take charge of someone and say, hey, I'm going to babysit you because you've lost your mind. And James and, and Jesus' brothers came to Jesus and they're like, you've lost your mind. You're like, you're going loony. We're taking you and we're babysitting you. We're taking charge of you. And yet something changed in James because by Acts chapter, further on in the story, in Acts chapter 15, we find out that not only is James a follower of Jesus, but James is actually one of the leaders, the leaders of the entire Christian movement. Now, what changed for James from being like, my brother's not the son of God. I got to take charge of him. He's lost his mind 
to he is the son of God. I suspect seeing his brother die and then rise back to life had a great deal to do with it. In fact, what's really interesting of the story of James is history tells us that James would actually be murdered, killed for his, not his belief, but his eyewitness account of his brother Jesus. And this is interesting. All of the disciples, all of the 12, other than John, were told, died for their faith. But not only what they believed, because people die for what they believe in all the time. It doesn't make it true, right? You could be deceived, believe something that's not true, but you think it's true. So you're like, I'm gonna die for it because I think it's true, but it's actually not true. It doesn't make it true that you died for it. But they died not just for what they believed about Jesus, they died for what they had seen, an event in history, an event in history. This is the problem. This is a problem for our doubts as it relates to the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, Paul, in that passage I read earlier, in chapter 15, where he says, hey, this is of first importance, he goes on to say just how important it is. He says this, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Everything hangs on one thing, the resurrection. If Jesus is still dead, our preaching is useless, your faith is useless. He goes on and says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. What, what good is it? And then he goes on, he just kind of caps it off by saying this, and if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we of all people are most to be pitied, which means this. If Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, if he simply died for our sins and that's it, he never rose to life, we are the most pitiful lot in the world. The greatest fools of the earth, most to be pitied. But if Christ has been raised, isn't the opposite true? If Jesus is alive, everything, everything changes. And this is exactly where Paul goes as he speaks about resurrection in that key verse we were looking at. He says, if this happened, then everything changes. So let's dive back to Romans 8, 11. And if the spirit of him, that's the spirit of God, who raised Jesus from the dead, if this happened and he is living in you, Paul's point is this, if there's this power, the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead and that same resurrecting power is in you, then you are being resurrected then everything changes, not for you later, not for what happened in the past. Everything changes for you now. There is this resurrection that's happening now. In fact, this is the context of the whole passage of Romans 8. And I want to go back a little bit and kind of just walk through how Paul gets to verse 11, because he's talking about this idea that the resurrection impacts us right now. And here's what he says, starting in verse 5, he says, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. By flesh, Paul's talking about this idea of those of us who live by our, our natural human nature, which is under sin. This idea that we're sinners and we're born as sinners and we kind of just have this propensity, and you know this, kids just do 
bad things. Uh, you don't have to teach them to hit their sister. They just hit their sister. You don't have to teach them to lie to you. They just simply lie to you. It's like we just kind of are born doing these bad things. It doesn't mean we can't do some good things. We do some good things from, you know, here and there, but we have this human, uh, sinful, flesh nature. That's what he's talking about. He says, if you have your mind set on simply yourself and your old nature, what are you going to do? You're going to do that. You're just going to kind of live in this sinful nature. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit, that's God's Spirit, capital S Spirit, have their mindset on something else. They have their mindset not on the flesh or their old nature. They have their mindset on God, the Spirit of God. That's what he's talking about. And then Paul says there's two vastly different outcomes to these two pathways of life. Vastly different outcomes, these two pathways of life. Here's, the, here's what they are. The mind governed by the flesh is death. See, sin always leads to the same destination. Sin always produces the same thing. Just like an apple tree always produces apples, the sin tree always produces the same thing. Sin always leads to death. And Paul says, if you have your mind set in that sinful nature, if you have your mind set and you just kind of live to that, it's always, you're, you're, you may be alive, but you're not alive. You may be living, but you're not experiencing life. But the mind governed by the Spirit, capital S Spirit, the Spirit of God, is different. It's life. It's peace. This is what God, God is the author of life. And then Paul riffs a little bit about this whole flesh thing, and then he'll riff a little bit about the whole spirit living by the spirit. And here's what he says about the flesh. He says, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It's like enemies to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. So it doesn't, and it actually can't. When your mind is set on one thing, you're just going to live to that one thing. You can't live a different way. When your mind is set on the flesh, you can't live to please God. You cannot, Paul says. It's impossible. See, those who are in the realm of the flesh can't please God. Their mindset is on something else. Now, logically, this makes sense. But Paul goes on and says, You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh but you are in the realm of the Spirit, the Spirit of God, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. That means if the same power that raised Christ from the dead, the resurrected Jesus, that same power is resurrecting you, you no longer live in the pathway of death. You've been made alive. And now you live in the pathway of life. If indeed God's Spirit, that resurrecting power, in you it changes everything and so he goes on and says and if and anyone uh, does not uh, have the spirit of Christ they do not belong to Christ in essence what Paul is saying is if you don't have Jesus the spirit of Jesus in you that's been raised from the dead you can't have life there is no life outside of Jesus when Jesus said, I've come that you may have life and have it full, have it abundant, have real life, he wasn't lying. There is no life outside of Jesus. Only by faith in him can we be resurrected and live in a new life, in new pathways. You know, Paul says the same thing a couple chapters earlier. 
Oh, sorry, he goes on and says, but if Christ is in you, again, talking about this change that's happened, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. Even though we're still in these broken bodies that are, are breaking down and deteriorating, there's this new life that starts bubbling out from within us. It's the Spirit of God in you. You know, Paul says the same thing a couple chapters earlier in chapter six. He says it this way. Now, if we died with Christ by faith, we've kind of become one with Christ through faith and we died with him on the cross, then we believe we're also gonna live with him. Why? For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, if Jesus has been raised from the dead, if we're one with him in death through faith, then we're one with him in life through resurrection. We have the spirit. So what does this all change for us now? What does the resurrecting power of Jesus in us change now five verses later paul tells us and this is epic paul says sin shall no longer be your master this is the outworking of the resurrection that you've been resurrected which means this by faith in jesus you don't have a master called sin sin is not your master. When sin comes calling, the old nature, the old flesh comes calling, when it's like, oh, I used to do that, or I used to live in those pathways, no longer are you mastered by those old pathways. No longer are you mastered by sin. Sin is not your master. In fact, this is so, so powerful. I want us all to say this. Sin is not my master, okay? Out loud together, okay? One, two, three. Sin is not my master, those of you online, join us all together. Here we go. Sin is not my master. In fact, look at the person beside you and tell them, hey, sin is not your master. Sin is not. Sin is not your master. But here's the challenge for us. Now, for many Christians, we live as though it's still Friday. We live as though Jesus died on the cross and he paid for our sin. But we just moved from defeat to defeat to defeat. And oh, we're thankful, yeah, Jesus forgives me for this. And, and then I fail and Jesus forgives me and Jesus forgives me. But we live as though we're in this perpetual Friday where it's like, I have no power over sin. Now I want to tell you today, today is not Friday. Friday is gone. Friday's done. As good as Friday was, it's not the best. It is Sunday. And as followers of Jesus, Paul is telling us, we live in a perpetual Sunday. Every day is Sunday. And sin is no longer your master. That you do not have to give into sin. Does that mean you will never sin? No. It just means that as sin comes calling, you're not just like, oh, I have to. Oh, I give in every time. That there is this victory, this power over sin because the resurrected Christ actually lives in you. And he raised Jesus from the dead and he's raising you from death to life. So I wanna speak new words over you. If you're living and you feel like, man, I'm just living in this perpetual defeat. I'm living this perpetual lie that I can't get out of this, that, that this thing is gonna own me and it's gonna own me. In fact, I've just defined myself this way. This is who I am. This is not who you are. Sin is not your master. I wanna tell you right now that resurrection is now. Resurrection is right now. That our lives are changed 
now. This happens right now. That sin dies in us now. That we are made new now. That we are transformed now. We have the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead in us right now. That means the resurrection is now. Resurrection. You are not a slave. That means right now you are not a slave to sin. You are not condemned. Hear those words right now. You are not condemned. Right now, you are not condemned. And you are free now. Why? Because resurrection is now. See, if Jesus is alive, everything changes now. The very Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead is in you. You are no longer a slave to sin. Amen? Amen. Man, man, there's like Southern Baptist here. I don't know, Southern something. Anybody have some grits or? So going back to Paul, he's talking about the resurrection past. This is something that happened. And we have our doubts, but there's some some, uh, problems to our doubts we have to wrestle with. And if it's true, everything's changed now. But not only now. Paul goes on to say something's changed for our future. And if the spirit of God, of him who raised Jesus from the dead, is living in you now, he who raised Christ from the dead, what, something that happened, will also give life one day to your mortal bodies through his spirit, through the very spirit of God. And this is interesting. You know, maybe you're not a Christian and this is kind of all new and you're kind of figuring things out, but there's this kind of tendency among Christians and even non-Christians to have this idea that heaven is a spiritual place. It's like this place where they were just kind of disembodied, you know, our bodies stay back and our souls and our spirit goes to heaven and we sit on clouds and it's just this, we play harps and sing. doesn't sound very fun, but that's what heaven is. We have this idea of heaven. And Paul says, ah, that's not heaven. That's not even scriptural. Heaven is a physical place. We don't look forward as Christians to the day when we shed our bodies No, we look forward to the day when our body is resurrected, when our body is made new, when our mortal bodies that keep giving out are one day made perfect. And we are given life. So what Paul is saying is, here's the deal. The resurrection happened, and the resurrection's happening. The Spirit of God is in you. And you notice in in verse 10 of Romans 8, he talked about this idea that, that even though our bodies are broken, the Spirit is in us leading to righteousness, to this life, and it started to bubble up. But the full resurrection will be fully embraced and fully experienced one day when Jesus returns and he will raise our bodies and heaven will be a physical place because God's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. And that's something I can get excited about when brokenness is gone. And Jesus' resurrected body was a resurrected body. It wasn't some spiritual resurrection. Because when people went to the tomb later to say, is his body there? Nobody could be found. He had been raised. This is what we look forward to. This is our hope. And so he says, through your, mortal bo- or through, uh, your mortal bodies through the spirit will be raised who lives in you. See, Jesus has been raised. It happened. And he's resurrecting us now. It gives us hope for a future resurrection But the assurance of our hope is that he's living in us now. Everything has changed. 
You know, Paul, I want to read that verse I read earlier from 1 Corinthians 15. He says this, If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we of all people are most to be pitied. The Christian faith is not just built on history to say Jesus died and rose to life. Oh, and you know what? You have some hope for today. It's a faith that gives us hope for the future. And if we didn't have that, we'd be most to be pitied. But we have a guarantee of a future resurrection because the resurrected Christ is living in us. See, if Jesus is alive, everything changes. So I encourage you, the past resurrection impacts the present with resurrection now, and it gives us hope for our future resurrection. Let the resurrection that happened then change you now and give you a sure hope for your future. So I want to ask you, have you experienced resurrection? Have you experienced the power of the, of the God who raised Jesus? Have you experienced that in your own life? I want to give an invitation, and maybe you're watching online, and maybe you're here. This has ignited something in you, and you feel this tug on your, on your own heart, in the core of who you are, that you don't have life. That you spent your entire life looking for life. And you're like, I'm alive, but I'm not alive. And today you've heard that Jesus is the one who gives life. Life that's unmatched in quality and life that's unending in quantity. And you want that life. I want to encourage you, today is your resurrection day that you can become a child of God, that you can have the very same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead come and live in you. And it's simple. It's simple to be resurrected because God has already done all the work, but it's gonna cost you everything. You know, to become a follower of Jesus, to receive this resurrection, it's simple. It's simply saying, A, I admit that I'm a sinner, God, that I am not right with you and I can't get right with you on my own. And B, I believe in Jesus as my savior from sin, but also that he has broken the power of sin and death through his resurrection. And then the costly part is saying, now, Jesus, that you're raised, I commit my life to you. I declare your king in my life. And that's what it costs us. It's saying, God, you have authority. You are king. You get to determine my life. I'm under you. And if that's you today, if you have never received Jesus, I want to encourage you, today's your resurrection day. And I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And it's a simple prayer of simply receiving what God has done for us in Jesus. Simply admitting we're sinners, believing in Jesus as our savior, and then committing our life to him. And if that's you, I want to invite you to repeat the words after me uh, in your own heart and mind, or just simply agree by saying, I agree. And you can become a child of God today. Today can be your resurrection day. Let me pray with you. Father, thank you that you loved this world and you loved me so much that you sent Jesus to die for my sin, to take my place, to pay my debt. 
I confess that I'm a sinner. And I believe in you, Jesus, as my Savior. And from now on, my life is not mine. My life is yours. And I'll follow you. Amen. I want to encourage you. If you said that prayer, if that was the first time you ever gave your life to Jesus and committed your life to him, you've just been resurrected. You just crossed over from death to life. And if you, uh, yeah, amen. If you have uh, done that for the very first time, I want you to tell someone If you know someone, if you're listening online, you know someone who's a follower of Jesus, tell someone you're part of a family. We do life together. And if you have no one to tell, I encourage you, come talk to me after the service. Maybe you're like, I don't even know. I prayed that and I I don't know what it means. What does it mean to be a child? And there's just so much newness that you're like, I don't know, but I think something's changed. I think everything's changed. And now I'm gonna live into a new life. I just wanna encourage you in that. You have been resurrected. And for those of us who live with Christ, I want to declare over you today, it's not Good Friday, as good as Friday was. It's Sunday. We live in a perpetual Sunday. You do not move from defeat to defeat to defeat. Christ is in you, and the power that raised him from the dead is in you. We move from victory to victory, and from defeat to victory. It's Sunday. Amen? Thanks so much for joining us today. We trust you have been encouraged and challenged in your faith journey. If you're desiring prayer, want more information on our church, want to partner with us or be involved in any way, please go to our website at mountoliveefc.com. We'll see you next time.